Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Did anybody else sue Northwestern yet today? And I'm not being funny, and I'm not kidding. And believe me, this is no laughing matter. But more lawsuits are expected any second. And again, this is not a laughing matter. It's getting more disgraceful by the moment. It's getting uglier by the moment. Now, what started as the worst look ever for that football program has turned into the worst look ever for the entire athletic program. And frankly, for the school. Like, don't get me wrong. It's still the worst look ever, allegedly, for the football program and for Pat Fitzgerald and for Jack back there. Sorry to drag you into it, bro. Dude, you do have a degree from that school. That is one of the reasons I hired you, dude, because you have a graduate degree from that school. Had I known now, allegedly, or then what I know now, anyway... The more we find out, the more we find out that the culture of reported, alleged, rampant, out of control, idiotic, and potentially criminal hazing, the more we hear, the more we find out it was widespread in Northwestern, allegedly. So widespread that lawyers now say that they have heard from athletes in the baseball softball, volleyball, and even cheerleading programs. What? The archers and water polo people didn't want any of that? What's next? Are you going to tell me that the math club was hazing freshmen too? Did the debate team have a naked pull-up ritual? Again, No laughing matter. This is nothing to joke about. In fact, from the very beginning, the whole thing's been pretty tough to wrap the head around at all. If what these former players allege is true, how does an entire athletic program run so far off the rails like that? And again, to go back to the obvious, something I have always said on this program, something that I have never understood. The hell is even the point of hazing. Is there anything dumber than that? Sexually humiliating the underclassmen, allegedly, has never galvanized a team, ever. No program has ever rallied around physically traumatizing freshmen. Just think about how stupid that sounds for a second. Think about how absurd it is. And remember that no player has ever walked off the field and said they owe it all to the hazing. Nobody has ever gotten to a championship podium and said, I want to thank my parents, the man above, my teammates, and most of all, all the dry humping from the seniors. I could not have done any of this without the dry humping of the upperclassmen. Thank you. There's a good reason why that's never once happened and never will happen. Because there is no upside to this crap. It's just stupid. And it's wrong. And wait for it. It is illegal. Hazing is illegal in the state of Illinois, as it is in most other states. Furthermore, some of those who allegedly were hazed may have been minors at that time, complicating matters even further.
So in no way is any of this okay if it happened. If it happened. Again, this is not tradition. This is not ritual. It's potentially criminal activity. So then you have the other side, right? Former head coach Pat Fitzgerald's attorney would tell you that, in fact, if any of this was going on, if, if any of this was going on, the coach did not know about it. That's what his attorney would tell you. I would suggest to you that if this was going on, how the hell could the head coach not know about it? And if the head coach didn't know about it and it was going on, he should have known about it. And that if he really didn't know about it, and I don't buy that for a second, but if he really didn't know about it, it's because he didn't want to know about it. But even that seems impossible to believe. If the hazing was as widespread as these former players suggest, how the hell could he not know about it? His program, his culture, his responsibility. I don't know what's true and what's not. But here's what I do know. This dude, the ultimate Northwestern man, the guy who turned down so many other jobs, allegedly, maybe even NFL jobs, if you believe that. And out of what? Loyalty to school. If all of that is to believed, then this guy's not who we thought he was. That much I do know. That dude's not who we thought he was. Then again, I've said that almost from the jump. Ever since I've had this show, we don't really know any of these people. I mean, think about that for a minute. If somebody had said to you before the year started that there would be this full-blown hazing scandal that would envelop a program, and not just the football team, but the athletic program, and if I were to say to you, who do you think that would be? Would Pat Fitzgerald not be the last guy on the list if, in fact, that's what happened? We don't know any of these people. No, and again, I don't know exactly what happened. Again, there are two sides to every single story. Fitzgerald would say he didn't know about any of this activity. All right, the other side, to which one of his former quarterbacks, Lloyd Yates, would say that's bullcrap. The abuse of hazing was so entrenched in the Northwestern football culture that even some of our coaches took part in it. The graphic sexually intense behavior was well known throughout the program. We were physically and emotionally beaten down and some players have contemplated suicide as a result. So today I'm proud to come forward amongst uh, my brave teammates here today to let the truth be known, the truth that is perpetuated for decades. So very strong statements. He said coaches not only knew but participated in. He did not elaborate on that. He did not say how they elaborated in, but he said they knew and they participated. Pretty damning, pretty devastating, very difficult to hear. Again, we don't know exactly what coaches knew or saw or didn't know or participated in, but again, the buck does stop with the leader of the program, which is why it's hard for me to understand how the university only suspended Fitzgerald for two weeks after they ran their own investigation. They investigated this for six months. And what was their response? They announced a two-week suspension during a news dump on a Friday. Like the whole thing would just go away. Meanwhile, the kids at the school newspaper Cracked this entire thing wide open in about six days. 
I mean, did the school really think they could just sweep this whole thing under the rug? That nobody would know, nobody would care, nobody would bother to look into it any further. I mean, could the school have handled this any worse than it did? I guess that's how a situation gets that bad. Nobody in a position to stop it, cares enough to stop it, and then over decades, it gets worse and worse and worse, and then it spirals completely out of control. Allegedly. If you want to say, hey, you know what? It never happened. All right, it never happened. Who are all these players? Where are they all coming from? Did they all get in cahoots because they want to get paid? Is that what you would allege? And yes, you just heard Lloyd Yates mention that it's been going on for, quote, decades. According to a new report this morning in The Athletic, the hazing nightmare actually began at Camp Kenosha. That's the football team's annual trip to Wisconsin for a week of August practice. The team has been going there since 1992, as in even before Pat Fitzgerald was enrolled in Northwestern. So apparently, reportedly, Allegedly, a much less insane version of the hazing tradition started in Kenosha, and for a long time, it was contained to just that week. Like, they'd go away for a week, they'd be there, they'd be in the dorms, they wouldn't be allowed to really do anything except football, and you know, quote, boys will be boys. But at some point, the rituals intensified. And then at some point, reportedly, Allegedly, they were not just confined to that week at Camp Kenosha. They made their way back to the campus, allegedly. And then apparently that culture of hazing spread around the campus, allegedly, to the point where now we have volleyball players and former cheerleaders looking to sue the school as well. I mean, stunning how this could all go down at one of the most amazing universities in the world. Stunning that a football coach viewed as the ultimate leader and a program icon and a legend could go down like this. Stunning that the university leadership failed to grasp the problem. Stunning that so many people could do such a bad job at their jobs and let so many athletes down in the process, which is why right about now, Everybody is getting their faces sued right off. The university, the trustees, coaches, former coaches, ADs, former ADs, the university president, and a former university president. That big of a mess. And believe me, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There is so much more still to come, I'm sure. Still so many more people to come out of the woodwork. The ugliness is far from over. Which is why I will ask yet again, since it has been, I don't know, 10 minutes, did anybody else sue Northwestern since the show started? And, and can somebody, and, and don't come in here with, Rome, you just don't get it. Did you ever play sports at the college level? Do you not understand? Oh, I understand. I understand really well. I understand. Let's not confuse tradition and ritual with criminal activity. Sexual hazing and degrading people and dehumanizing them never made them better athletes, better teammates, better at life, winning. According to this player, it actually made them contemplate suicide. And you're going to tell me that the guy running the whole thing had no idea? No idea? 
1-800-636-8686. Hit me up. If you want to hit me up on Twitter on this, go ahead and do so at Jim Rome. I won't get a legal aspect of this, too. A dim perspective, Michael McCann will join me at 1040. And, and again, also, before you come in here and say, hey, by the way, Rome, wake up. It's going on everywhere. It happens everywhere. I would suggest to you that it's not happening everywhere. I'm sure it's happening in a lot of places. But it needs to stop happening. Essentially, that's the point. It needs to stop happening. It should have never gotten to this point. And you know, what's really interesting is the culture of it. Like, some of these players were suggesting that when they got on campus, they heard about it. They knew it was coming. They had never seen it. They had never experienced it. But they had heard about it and already got it in their head. Oh, hell no. Not me. Not me. Anybody who tries that with me is going to get the hands. Anybody who tries that with me is going to find out early on they're messing with the wrong guy. Only to find out that the culture was so strong and they were so overpowered in the moment and so overwhelmed in the moment. And then the thought that, you know what? I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to be a part of this group if I don't partake. So I need to do this. The whole thing is so jacked up. Oh, and by the way, in terms of that bonding, that bonding that resulted from that, you mean that same bonding that had that team 1-11 and 11 last year? Yeah, I guess that didn't bring that team together. You know, and then how about those parents sending those kids to that school when the coaches promised to, hey, I got you. We're going to make better people out of them. We'll look after them. And then also one more thing. Some of these former students were saying, in some cases, I was the first person from my family to go to college. This was a really important thing. I didn't want to risk losing that in any way. I was terrified. I had to go along with it. And then others even said that didn't want to go along with it, that raised objections, that said, hey, listen, this is what's going on. This is wrong. They were met with anger and retaliation. Discover credit cards do something pretty awesome. At the end of your first year, they automatically double all the cash back you've earned. That's right. Everything you have earned doubled. All the cash back from eating at your favorite restaurant doubled. All the cash back from that trip where you sort of learned to snowboard also doubled. And the best part, you don't have to do anything ridiculous to get it. Discover does it automatically. Seriously, though, see terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. Rex Hoggard, and he joins us via Zoom. Rex, what's going on? How are you? It is a perfect English summer day. Like, it's you're never going to see this the rest of our lives, I don't think. It's 70 degrees outside, sunny. This is not what we've come to expect from the Open Gym. No, not at all. In fact, I wasn't going to get there just yet, but inevitably we always talk about the weather when we talk about the Open. In fact, I'll double back to that, Rex, so I'm glad you're having a great day. Help me out with something first, though. Who the hell is Christo Lamprecht, and what can you tell me about him? I mean, it's funny. I was just on the phone with the golf coach at uh, Georgia Tech where he's going to school, um, and it's been interesting. Uh, you go back, he's South African. He is a monster of a human being. He's six foot nine. So he's not, I think anybody who watched this morning was taken not by the swing, but by the fact that someone six foot nine is swinging it like that. It's absolutely amazing for those of 
kind of the golf nerds in the audience. I think everyone's kind of having a field day watching him play golf, but it's been entertaining because you look at the way he was able to attack this golf course, as I just mentioned, relatively calm conditions. The part that blows you away is he hadn't really played all that great golf. He really, really struggled at NCAA championships just a few weeks ago and was really kind of down on himself. And our his coach told me that they kind of had to have a pep talk. They quit getting down on yourself. You have to stop being your worst, own, your own worst enemy on the golf course. And I think we saw that today. It was neat to watch. Rex, have you ever seen anybody, and again, this guy is like 6'8", six, 6'9", six, have you ever seen anybody bend down that low just to reach the ball with a driver? No, not anybody that could perform like that. My brother-in-law actually played in the NBA, so whenever he and I play golf together, and he's 7'2". So I've kind of seen him sort of try to swing like that, but he doesn't work. He can't pull it off. It's, it's amazing what he has made repeatable. And it, it's interesting. I talk to people who have covered him at Georgia Tech and at NCAAs. And when that swing gets off, it, you can have some problems with it because it's a lot of timing. It's a lot of leverage. But when it's on, it's so powerful. I think some, they were showing some shots today where his ball speed was in the 190s with an iron. I mean, that's driver speeds for the top guys. That's Rory. That's Bryson. And for him to do that with an iron, he has so much power. Rex, is your brother-in-law Yao Ming? <laughs> no, it's uh, Mamadou Injai. He played at Auburn and then played it for a couple of di different NBA teams. But it's so it's fun watching him play golf because uh, I obviously can't play basketball with him. So it's a lot of trash <laughs> I got you. Rex Hogger is joining us. So, Rex, what about Rory? Rory comes into the tournament with some momentum, having won the Scottish Open last week. He won the Claret Jug for the last time in 2014. That's when the Open was last played on this course. He has not won a major, of course, since the PGA Championship that year. How massive, then, are the expectations for Rory this week? I don't think they can get any bigger, and I think he recognizes it. That's the thing with Rory. He doesn't try to hide away, hide away from these things. He understands that everyone is watching. Uh, winning last week at the Scottish Open, just about four hours uh, south, uh, north of here, I think that actually kind of put more pressure on him, but he, he's learned at least, at the very least, that the only thing he can kind of deal with is the shot in front of him. And he, he hasn't been able to do it for a decade, and it's only going to get harder as time goes on. And today is a, a predictable struggle for him, but he hasn't played his way out of it. And I think that's probably a good sign. Rex, what about Cameron Smith? He's trying to become the first back-to-back -back Open champion since 07-08. Casual fans have not seen that much of him since he joined the Live Tour. So what is the state of the game of a player who is one of the best putters in the world and the defending champ? I think we saw the best putting today. Like, that hasn't changed. I've kind of said that all along, ever since we started playing major championships uh, since Live Golf, that even though the live golfers went away. We don't see them on a regular basis. If they went away as world-class players, they came back as world-class players. We've seen it. We saw it at the Masters. We certainly saw it at the PGA when Brooks Kepka won. They're still very, very good, and we shouldn't be surprised when they put themselves in the contention. And that's Cam Smith. I mean, he is still a world-class player. It doesn't matter what his world ranking is based on what the number is. He is still a, cap a player capable of winning this championship. That being said, the one thing he said – earlier this week that stood out to me is that this driver is not cooperating and that's going to be a problem on this golf course because you don't have to be off by a whole lot. And these bunkers you're, we're going to see over the course of the next couple of days, they are a full shot penalty. I mean, it's going to be tough if you end up in them. Rex Hoggard is joining us from the Open Championship. Rex, you mentioned Brooks Kepka, so let me ask you about him. He finished tied for second in the Masters. He chased out by winning the PGA Championship, but only finished tied for 17th at the U.S. Open while ripping the L.A. Country Club in the process. How does a Lynx course suit his game? I think he's going to probably struggle here like he did at LACC, maybe for a little bit different reasons. And it's all about the bounces. 
here. I mean, you know, links golf, uh, it's, you can hit a good shot that ends up in a bad spot. And I think most golfers who have success in links golf, they come to grips with that. They come to grips with the idea that, okay, I just have to roll with whatever bounces I end up with. Brooks isn't real good at that. I mean, Brooks is really, really good at a lot of things as evidenced by his major championship resume. The one thing he has a hard time, he struggles with is the idea that my good shot's not going to be rewarded every single time. And that just doesn't happen. And Link Scott, probably the best example of that is going to be the 17th hole this week. It's a brand new hole. It's a really, really small target. They tried to create something like 12 at Augusta, and there's going to be so many bad bounces, and you're going to hear guys complain so much. So, Rex, who do you like this week? Who are you focused on? Who intrigues you? I'm going to go straight to the top. And, it, and when it comes to major championships, it's kind of tough to go chalk. But Scotty Scheffler, the world number one, would be the guy. If you look at what he's done – this season he's leading the pga tour ball striking tee to green by a long shot rory is second and by almost a full stroke which is huge that's tiger-esque kind of lead in that particular category and for scotty it's been all about the putting and if he can just have an average putting week he can certainly put himself into contention if he has a good putting week he could win by a lot so it's hard not to root for or look at scotty as the clear favorite here rex hogler joins us for a few more moments hey rex what about masters champ john rom i thought he made some interesting comments this week about the pending pga live tour merger he said he personally does not feel like it's important that he's got to be compensated for his loyalty to the pga after he reportedly turned down 400 mil to join live what are you hearing about other PGA players who stuck with the tour? How do they feel about that topic? Would they like to be compensated generally? Just be clear, John also said that he wouldn't turn down the money if it was pushed in his direction. So, yes, okay. I think he said the right thing. And I think he, he believes that. I, I will say the other players, certainly probably Rory, would be the one at the top of the list. If you go back to the framework agreement between the PGA Tour and the Public Investment Fund that was announced the last month, there was only a couple things that this really did. And one of them is to create sort of this pathway for those players who stay loyal to the tour to get compensated, to get made right is the word or is the phrase that everyone seems to be working on. And I have contended all along that of all the things that golf has to do to get to whatever the definitive agreement is going to look like, and we have no idea what that's going to look like, but the easiest of all of those things is compensating those players because that's money. That's a really, really easy equation. And if the PGA tour is working with the public investment fund, they have monopoly money. They can pay John Rahm that $200 million or whatever the case may be. They can pay Rory whatever it takes to, quote, make him whole again. I think players, by and large, are going to say the right thing, but I do think it's an issue they're going to have to address. All right, so players, by and large, will say the right thing. When is Tiger going to say anything about this? Well, he does have the luxury of not having to. He's not in the public eye right now. He's not playing professional golf, so that's certainly – helps out. I think his silence is probably something that needs to be noted here in this particular case. I think the fact that there was a leak a few weeks ago before the Senate hearings that the PGA Tour had to go testify in front of that there was a memo that sort of talked about some things that they wanted Tiger to say at a player meeting last year at the Travelers Championship in Connecticut. And Tiger did come out publicly and say, I wasn't at that meeting. He never saw the memo. I think that's telling. Look, it's the little things that Tiger says and maybe doesn't say that are very telling. And in this particular case, I think Tiger has, by and large, been supportive of the PGA Tour, been supportive of Commissioner Jay Monahan. I think like a lot of players, and certainly we heard it in the last couple of weeks, there is a problem that these players have with the way this deal was negotiated. It's just a framework agreement, but it was done in secrecy, and maybe that's the way it had to be. But the Tour has a lot of work to do and damage control to earn back the trust, and I think Tiger's probably included in that group.
He is a Golf Channel insider, a senior writer for GolfChannel.com, co-host of the Golf Channel podcast with Rex and Lav, with Ryan Lavner, and of course, a member of the Jungle's legendary Rex streak, joining us from overseas. Rex, appreciate you so much. Great job, and always good to have you on the show. Thanks for breaking that down. Thanks, Jim. Love being on. U.S. Cellular is introducing us mode. You know, it's kind of like airplane mode, but for people, it's a way to set up your phone so it does not get in the way of people really being with each other. Block distractions. Make way for real connections. Give it a try. Visit U.S. Cellular in-store or online, and they'll help set up your phone to us mode free, even if you're not a customer. Built for superior 5G connection and real human connection, U.S. Cellular, built for us. Find out more at uscellular.com slash find us. I talked about how screwed running backs are right now in the NFL. So screwed that Melvin Gordon told me last month, running back, and this is last month, not yesterday, not Monday, last month, Melvin Gordon said running back is, quote, literally the worst position to play in sports right now. It literally sucks. It's just so tough for running backs right now, man. You have a lot of running backs that's out there. and We just <laughs> we just don't get no love. It's literally the worst position to play in the NFL right now. You know, it literally sucks. All right, so he said in the NFL, not sports. My bad. But he did say it literally sucks. Saying something sucks is not is not a take. But in this case, I'll make an exception. That's a great take. It literally sucks. So that's still the take of the offseason. Even if saying something sucks isn't supposed to be a take. But he's right. Because right now, being a running back does suck. There's no debating that. And it only gets more obvious by the day how terrible these guys have it, because as they run through their options, you realize they don't actually have any options. Case in point, Saquon Barkley. He made some very, very spicy comments on the Money Matters podcast, which dropped earlier this week. This is good guy Saquon Barkley that wants to be a giant. Listen to what he had to say. I can say f you to the Giants. I can say f you to my teammates and be like, you want me to show you my worth? You want to show you how much how valuable I am to the team? I won't show up. Right. I won't play it down. And that's a that's a that's a that's a play I can use. Do I anybody knows me, knows that's not something I want to do. But like it's something that has it something that crossed my mind. It's like I has never to. I never thought I would ever do that, but like now I'm in a point where it's like, Jesus, like I, I might have to take it to this level and like am I willing am I prepared to take it to the level I don't know that's something I got to sit down and like I got to talk to my family I got to sit down talk to my team got to really you know strategize about this can't just like go off of emotions quote I can't just go off of emotions man my man's emotions are raw that was all emotion f-bombing his teammates f-bombing the organization invoking Jesus. I mean, Jesus. Like that, that's raw emotion. So I think Andrew Brandt was dead on when he told us earlier this week that Saquon was, quote, pissed. He's pissed, all right, and I understand why. But let's be real. Sitting out is not an actual option. Not a good option. I mean, in theory, yes, It is a tool that he could try to create some sort of leverage with. But in reality, everybody knows that's not going to work. It's a terrible idea. 
Let me put it to you this way. If Saquon actually does decide to say F you to his teammates, F you to the organization, and quote Jesus, and give up 10.1 mil coming his way on the tag, and waste a year of his physical prime, if he actually goes through with all of that, then he will be the only one who thinks that that is a good idea. Like They don't have to like it. In fact, I guarantee they hate it. But if he's going to do what he says he's going to do, get with the people who matter most, sit with his family, and talk it through, and if they look at it objectively, what they're going to come around to is what ultimately all of us come around to at some point in our life or in business. We don't like it, but it's our best move. It's our best play. It's our only play. The Le'Veon Bell disaster taught us how risky and how costly that move can be. And Bell would be the first one to tell Saquon as much. There's pretty much no guarantee that anything will be better for Saquon or the running back market next offseason. Like, almost he could have a career year this year, and that still won't change the market. Look at Josh Jacobs. Look at the year that guy just had for the Raiders. Now, you could argue that they already had concerns about him or he wouldn't have gotten into that fifth year. But look at the year that guy just had. He led the NFL in rushing. This guy wants to be a Raider for life. He was sitting in a car outside the facility, pen in hand, waiting. And it got him nothing. So, in theory, Saquon could say F you to his teammates, F you to the organization, and sit out the entire year. But it's not a good idea. And by the way, you don't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that. He just said it. He does not want to do that. He didn't turn on the organization. He loves the team. He loves being a giant. He wants to be there. Do you think this guy wants to jam his teammates? He knows they're not nearly as effective without him. He doesn't want to put them in that spot, but he feels like the team is putting him in a bad spot. And it is what it is. The market is what the market is. I always say it. Sometimes you got the hammer, and sometimes you're going to get hammered. Running backs are getting hammered. They've got no leverage. None. If he doesn't want to play, they'll find somebody else. I'm not saying they'll find the equivalent of Saquon Barkley, but they will find somebody else. There are other quality running backs that are available right now. If he doesn't want to play, they'll find somebody else. So he wants to be a giant. He wants to play. He said as much on that podcast. In fact, check out this story. Check out his story about meeting face-to-face with John Mara earlier this offseason. I sat down with the owner, and I was like, the owner opened up to me, and I respected that. Like, you called me in as a man. You sat me down as a man. We looked each other eye to eye. Told me how much you feel about me. I let you know. You know how much I feel about this place, how much I feel about your family. We have two owners, how much I feel about Tish's family. And that's when I picked up the phone and I called my agent and I was like, I don't care. Let's get it done. Like, I don't care. How, like, boom, let's, this is where I, I want to be. I'm fine. This is the number I'm fine with. Boom, boom, let's get there. But then when you get tagged, like, then it's kind of like, yep. now they have the tag. Now it's like, you know what, Saquon? If we really don't want to, we don't have to offer you anything. Right. And they don't. And they're not. They have the tag. They're not afraid to use it. So I can't think of a more perfect example of how messed up the entire situation is. The Giants love the player. The player loves the Giants. He literally sat face-to-face with the owner. They told each other how much they love each other. 
The Giants need this dude. The dude only wants to play there. But because of that pesky franchise tag, somehow all of that love is not enough to come to a reasonable agreement on a new contract because business is business. How do you think these owners became multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaires or billionaires? By being ruthless business people. What, they're going to have a tag and not use it because he's a good dude and they profess their love for each other? As long as that tag is available, they will use it to their advantage. You know, I'd even argue that Barkley is not trying to reset the market here. He's not looking for King Henry money. You know, like Josh Jacobs, I don't think, is trying to reset the market in Vegas, even though he just led the NFL in rushing. Jacobs... Like Barkley just wants a fair deal to avoid playing on the tag. Jacobs wanted that deal again so badly, he sat in a car with Max Crosby in the parking lot as the deadline approached, just waiting for somebody to say, hey, Josh, come on in. It's time. Let's do it. And the call never came. These dudes are not pulling diva moves. They're not being difficult. They're not being greedy. They're not making unreasonable demands. They're just screwed. And they don't really have a single legitimate recourse. Sitting out is not a good option. It's not a real option. And the idea that these two dudes, who are both absolutely critical to their teams and absolutely want to play for those teams, have to even consider sitting out only proves how jacked up it all is, and it only further proves Melvin Gordon's point. Literally the worst position to play at NFL right now. You know, it literally sucks. So what do you do? How does that change? The only obvious fix here is to get this sorted out in the next CBA negotiation. Either get rid of the tag or get rid of the rookie contract structure for running backs— or come up with some new solution and bake it right into the bargaining agreement. But it's hard to see how anything is going to get better for running backs until the next negotiation. And maybe the biggest kick in the stick for all running backs is the current CBA runs through 2030. You know, it literally sucks. 2030. So it's bad. And there's nothing you can do about it right now except say, F you to your teammates. F you to the organization. F*** to my teammates. Who you love. Forfeit 10 mil and one prime year of your career and say, Jesus, and sit on the couch. You know what? Jesus. That would literally suck. And that doesn't benefit anybody. It's not going to create leverage for the player. Saquon could have that career year and still not have any more leverage. So how is he going to benefit from saying F you to his teammates, F you to the team, and leave $10 million bucks on the table? He's not. He's not. Just a bad situation. But the point of my take is it tells you how bad it is that that good of a guy has been pushed to that level, a level of F you to his teammates, F you to the team, and Jesus. Jesus. I mean, that dude is mad. You to the Giants. Really mad. A really good dude who's really mad. We are joined by Michael McCann. Michael, it is so good to have you back. How are things, Michael? Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me back. 
It's good to have you back. So before we talk about the situation at Northwestern, uh, bring me up to date. I mentioned this. You will be at Harvard this fall. What's that look like, and what will you be doing? Thanks. Yeah, so I, I've been appointed a visiting professor at Harvard Law. I'll be teaching a course on legal reasoning to LLM students, so students who are already lawyers normally from other parts of the world, and I'll be teaching them about U.S. law and how things work here, and, and there's no shortage of sports examples that I can bring in. Congrats. Good for you. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. All right, so regarding Northwestern, if we were to go back, Michael, to Friday, July 7th, what was the school's initial statement when it announced that head football coach Pat Fitzgerald would be suspended for two weeks on a Friday news dump, and what was your reaction? My reaction was there's a lot more to this. But this was, as you just said, Jim, it was a Friday news dump, middle of July. This is the time to bury a story, and it also that invites the question of, what are they trying to bury? It also seemed like a pretty minor punishment if, in fact, there was hazing and he had some knowledge or should have had knowledge. It seemed, seemed like two weeks was a low number of a punishment. You would think it would be something more substantial, maybe games rather than two weeks in the middle of the summer. So I thought this is an attempt to kind of release information at a time when people aren't paying attention. But by making the punishment so modest, I think he kind of just invited more questions. So that, that to me, was a mistake. And we're talking to Michael McCann, so then not long thereafter, I mean, we're talking about a six-month investigation, and this is what they do. But then the school newspaper comes out with its own report, which leads the university president, Michael Schilt, to then announce that he's personally getting involved after speaking to an accuser's family. You know, again, you've been in this process before. What was your reaction to the president? taking on that role. Is that in any way unusual? It was it was unusual in the sense that he's now made, I mean, the fact that he made a statement about this, I think, was unusual, that this is such a, a public-facing controversy, and maybe there was an anticipation that, that it would be resolved without this this sort of university student publication really do, really kind of causing the school to look to look bad and to have to revisit what it's doing. And then also, the president saying, I've suspended him, but now I'm going to reconsider it. I thought, uh-oh, that's, that presents a procedural problem because you've already said that he gets a two-week suspension for whatever he did wrong. Now, why would he get a larger punishment based on, based on what? That, that people are upset? That doesn't seem like a meritorious reason. At least if I were the coach's lawyer, I would say that. It, it, you know, this is a, this is a university president that's a lawyer. That's a former law school dean. That's a really smart, accomplished person. But it, it, to me, it seemed like the university was backpedaling in a way that wasn't helpful. Michael McCann joining us. You actually answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So the school then moves ahead quickly. They fire Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald retains a law firm. What legal strategy would you expect his lawyers to take if he pursues litigation? Yeah, I, I think, Jim, number one, he's going to say he's a scapegoat. That this is a much more complicated problem at the university. That how many people should be blamed for this should arguably be a lot more than the coach. Only the coach has seemed to suffer any sort of consequences. There are all others. There are other coaches. There are athletic officials. There are university officials. Uh, these are students, right? So there are student advisors. There's all. There's a whole slew of people that could be implicated. And then secondly, I think he's going to say, how do you? elevate a suspension to a firing, presumably with cause, so probably lost the rest of the contract, 
what is the justification for that? When you already said university, whatever you think I did wrong only merited a two-week suspension. There was no new information that weekend that came up other than criticism. Uh, so I, I think the university has to really focus on how it can explain that jump from a two-week suspension to a firing that will cost him presumably many millions of dollars. In other words, he has a pretty strong case. It seems like it, yeah. I mean, I, I think they, they also should have not fired him during the suspension. That creates another problem. At least if they had a suspension and then fired him after it, they could say, well, after the two-week suspension, we've, we've gotten more information, et cetera. They didn't even do that. Michael McCann is joining us. So, Michael, his attorney says that Fitzgerald had no knowledge that any of this was going on. Does that seem plausible to you? Do you buy that? No. I'll be honest with you, Jim. I don't. He's the head coach. We know head coaches know what's going on in their teams. I have a really hard time buying that. Now, whether we can prove he knew it, I think is a separate question. But intuitively, it just doesn't add up to me. I agree with you. In terms of hazing, Michael, is this like when we talk about hazing, is it just merely traditional? Is it ritualistic or is it actually criminal activity? Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen. I, th I think certainly it's bad. It seems gross. It seems uh, we can we can throw a lot of adjectives at it. Whether it rises to a crime, I, I think it really depends on prosecutorial discretion and how a prosecutor wants to review it and maybe pressure to take action. Uh, it, clearly, the, this was this was bad. This was uh, put players in a really uncomfortable, horrible position, but. I, to rise to a crime, it requires confidence by a prosecutor that, that they're going to be able to get a conviction. And I don't know if we know enough yet to reach that point. Hmm. We're talking to Michael McCann. So obviously the coach is not the only one who's lawyered up. What can you tell us about the former athletes who have hired attorneys and their pending lawsuits? What does that look like? Yeah, so their names aren't out. I think that's something that, that they're going to have to – their names are going to come out. I, I, I don't see how they can justify – filing a lawsuit anonymously. They're adults. The, the, this is not a, a sexual offense in terms of, a, of an assault. Uh, my guess is that their names will come out. I think that, I think what we'll see is that the university will try to, to settle these claims because what's going to happen, Jim, is there's going to be pretrial discovery where all of these emails by university people, and I'll tell you, academic people write long emails, right? So, who knows what's in those emails, and they will come out as part of a discovery. And this is a private university, so it's not beholden to public records requests. So it's possible the people involved might be uh, maybe less cautious in what they write. I don't know. We'll find out. We're talking to Michael McCann. So, Michael, what about the sense that if we're talking about alleged sexual abuse, some of these players may have been minors at the time. If that's the case, what does that do to their particular cases? Yeah, so that, 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 that could potentially elevate it could it could make a prosecutor more inclined to charge number one and secondly the, the scope of potential charges grows if they were minors at the time of the abuse and it does sound like based on what we know they were freshmen so there there is a chance they could have been 17 so it could make a prosecutor more willing to bring a case now there's also they're no longer minors presumably right now they're going to be older than that so how will that work in terms of them as witnesses? I mean, there are a lot of factors to weigh. 
So, Michael, how concerned should Northwestern be that the allegations of hazing have spread beyond football, right? Last Thursday, the school fired their baseball coach, Jim Foster, after an internal investigation into the culture of that program. You've got others stepping up and alleging things about the softball team, the cheerleading squad even, and more. How concerned should they be for the university, university-wide, and not just the football program? They should be very concerned because we know there are attorneys that will, and I don't mean this to say they're being opportunistic, but the reality is that Northwestern is deep-pocketed and it's going to make an attractive target for litigation. And if, in fact, there was hazing and abuse and stuff like that, and if, and if the alleged victims are willing to pursue litigation, which I think is we don't know yet, right? That's a separate threshold. But if I'm the university, I'm, I'm definitely worried. I'm worried about there are all sorts of university officials that we've never heard of who we could now hear of because of this. That would worry me, too. Huh. Does the NCAA have any role in any of this? For instance, could the school be facing any kind of sanctions at all? Well, they could. We know they, the NCAA went on that path with Penn State. Now, they did it with, with problems, uh, as is often the case with the NCAA. I think they, they always seem to uh, do things in a way that, that invites scrutiny. But uh, let's face it, and others have said, I mean, why, who cares about NIL? Who cares about some of these financial issues if there are athletes being abused? Uh, that, that, to me, is a lot more important than some of the stuff that uh, we normally focus on. So leave me with this thought. How much worse do you think this is going to get before it gets any better? Oh, I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think it's going to get a lot worse. And I'll tell you, Jim, because the university can't settle everything quickly. And also, what happens if the Department of Justice gets involved or state, the state attorney general? There are all sorts of entities that could, that could decide they have, a, they have a stake in this, that they have jurisdiction over it. It could get a lot worse. There are Title IX issues. There are Clery Act issues. There are issues, education law issues, privacy issues. It, it could become a real mess. We'll find out. And what if it extends beyond Northwestern? Do you think, Michael, there might be a few other Power Five conferences or otherwise that are paying close attention to this? They should be. And if they have any issues with hazing that are like this, they better, A, figure out what happened, and B, they should get ahead of it. Because if you wait to be accused, then you're on the defensive, I think, trying to be proactive. And in a way, Northwestern tried that here, right? They hired a law firm to investigate, but then they, you know, releasing it in the middle of July on a Friday, uh, that, that backfired. So if I'm another university, I, I definitely, I definitely want to figure out what's going on in my athletic program. Hey, like you want to run a playbook, a playbook on how to not handle something. I mean, could they have handled that any worse? Hey, Michael, take off your legal hat for a minute. And just as somebody who's very logical and very bright, can, can you explain, like, if in fact the coach did know why would he not do something about that? Are you so entrenched in the way the world used to be and so locked into that culture that you think that that's okay? Like, logically, why did somebody not step in? If alleged, this is true, why would somebody who matter not step in and put an end to this? It's a great question, Jim. I, I don't know. I, you would think a coach, if they knew about this or even had reason to know, they, they should look into this. They shouldn't allow... What, what really is abuse, I mean, we can call it hazing, we can call it a bunch of things, but it's really fundamentally abuse. And I don't know, I think it, I think it is, A, maybe they just don't want to deal with it, that they're so focused on, on the field issues that 
They worry about how that would disrupt uh, the, the locker room, possibly. Hard, hard to know. And, and maybe it's been going on so long that he didn't think it would become an issue. That's another piece of it as well. Good night now!